In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit, one God, Amen. Each psalm actually has a title, and a t- the title of this psalm, To the Chief Musician, a Contemplation of the Sons of Korah. Chief Musician, either like the maestro of the choir, or some father said it is to the Lord Jesus Christ. St. Augustine comments on the title Son of Korah and he said this psalm is addressed to the sons of Korah as its title shows. Korah is equivalent to the word boldness. And we find in the Gospel that our Lord Jesus Christ was crucified in the place of a skull. So he's trying to connect boldness with skull. It is clear then that this song is sung to the sons of his passion. So he says the sons of Korah means the sons of the passion, suffering. Now we have on this point a most certain and most evident testimony from St. Paul. Because that at the time when the church was suffering under the persecutions of the Gentiles, he quoted from hence a verse. So when the church during the time of St. Paul was persecuted, St. Paul quoted in Romans chapter 8 a verse from the psalm, verse 22, to insert by way of consolation and encouragement to patience. Verse 22 that he caught, Yet for your sake we are killed all day long, we are accounted as sheep for the slaughter. So this verse you will find it in Romans. Uh, when St. Paul and all the Christians in the New Covenant, in the, new, in the first century, were suffering for the name of Christ, he quoted this verse. That's why St. Augustine said, since the title it is contemplation of the sons of Korah, and Korah means boldness. Boldness refers to the skull, and Jesus Christ was crucified in Golgotha, the place of the skull then we, the persecuted Christian, we can identify with this psalm. Especially St. Paul, when he was persecuted, and the Christian of the New Testament were persecuted, he quote verse 22 from this psalm in Romans chapter 8. St. Augustine continues and says, The title then is not simply to the sons of Korah, but for understanding to the sons of Korah. So this psalm is written and there is a hint in this psalm they should understand this psalm is written in a prophetic way to indicate the persecution that the Christian will suffer for the name of Christ. That what they should understand, to the understanding, to the sons of Korah.
This son is a hymn expressive, not of an individual, but of national feeling, expression of the whole nation together. It speaks of the nation of Israel in a season of great defeat, calling out to God for rescue. And in the prophetic way, it, is, it refers to the persecuted Christian. It is not certain who was the writer of the psalm, nor when it was written, or to what time it belongs. Some believe it was composed during the Babylonian captivity, and it gives a description of the church and people of God during this time. Others believe it's written by David the prophet. And David wrote it in a prophetic way. He speaks about the future time during like the time of captivity in Babylon, Babylon or representing the church of the New Testament. And why they said it's written by David? Because they connect this psalm with Psalm 60. And suppose that the occasion of both Psalms was the Edomite raid upon Judah while David was occupied with his campaign against Ammonites and Syrians. So they said these two Psalms were written during this time. Other commentators believe that the Psalm could be applied to the New Testament. As I told you, like verse 22 is cited by St. Paul in Romans 8 verse 36 and is applied to his time as descriptive of the suffering state and the condition of the church then. Other said this psalm refers to the time of Antiochus Epiphanius and to the persecution which occurred during him or his reign during the Maccabees time. But for sure we don't know who is the author of the psalm. Psalm is 26 verses. From verse 1 to 8, the psalmist describes the mercies of God. From verse 9 to 16, the psalmist points out their present miserable state. From verse 17 to 22, they remained faithful in spite of all the persecution and suffering. And 23 to 26, the psalmist call upon the Lord for deliverance. Let's start from verse 1. We have heard with our ears, O God, our fathers have told us, the deeds you did in their days, in days of old. So this message, this verse points out to the importance of oral tradition we have heard with our ears as means of preserving the memory of the past. Much of the early history of Israel was preserved by oral tradition for a very long period before it was committed to writing. So the church or Israel 
being in distress calls to mind the past mercies and works of God for his people in order to encourage her faith and hope. Like when I go through difficult time, I call to remembrance what God had done with me during all these previous years. And I take from this experience hope and encouragement to endure the current uh, suffering. The psalmist received a special legacy from his fathers. Our fathers told us from their elder generation. Those fathers were careful to tell their children what God did in generation past. And it is our responsibility as parents to share with our children what God has done with us in the past. It is the duty of the fathers to present to their children the experience of their life with God. Then he said, we heard with our ears. Definitely the person hears with his ears. So why he did not say we heard? Why he said we heard with our ears? This expression denotes that they were listening with great attention, with great pleasure, and they reflect, and, and we, we heard with our ears reflect the magnitude of their interest to listen and to know about what God had done with them in the past. Papias, which, who is a disciple of St. John the Evangelist and companion of St. Polycarp, says, With no hesitation, I add what I have learned and received of interpretations from the elder, which I am sure of their soundness. So he said, what I heard also it is not written, but since these fathers are trustworthy, then what I heard from them is very, very important. He added, for I do not believe that what I learn from the books would benefit me as much as what I get from the live voice. Like until now, when we read, even when we read the scripture, unless someone interprets the scripture for us, or we go to early church fathers to understand the scripture, many times the scripture is difficult to understand. <coughs> that what he said, I do not believe that what I learn from the books would benefit me as much as what I get from the live voice. Those of the elder generation told the psalmist of the great work God did when he drove out the Canaanites and planted Israel in the promised land and he gave it to the descendant of Abraham, Isaac, Jacob. As we read in verse 2. In verse 2 he starts to say what he heard from uh, the fathers. He said, you drove out the nations with your hand. Nations here, Canaan. 
But them, Israel, you planted, you afflicted the people and cast them out. You afflicted the people, the Canaanites, and cast them out. You spread the children of Israel in their place. So Israel owed its position of Canaan not to its own courage, but to God's help. If God did not help them, they wouldn't be able actually to take the promised land. So the many complete victories which Israel obtained over the Canaanites under the command of Joshua were not to be attributed to themselves, nor could they claim the glory of them. It's only through God's. And here there is metaphor of planting, but them, Israel, you planted. So the metaphor of planting is frequently applied to the establishment of Israel in Canaan. Israel here is compared to a tree which struck root, but spread its branches far and wide, which means God assigned them a fixed and permanent residence. بالعربي حطمت شعوبا ومددتهم فرشتهم كده مددتهم cast them out. So it would also mean that God made them increase, multiplied them, spread them over the land as vine spreads. The hands of God drove out heathen nations to plant his own people. In a spiritual meaning, how can I apply this verse to myself? This is God's plan for the life of his children. He uproot every corrupt nature from my heart and set and plant his kingdom, the fruit of the Holy Spirit inside me. Verse 3, for they, Israel, did not gain possession of the land by their own sword, nor did their own arm save them. But it was your right hand, your arm, and the light of your countenance, because you favored them, because you liked them. So, the thought of the preceding verse is still further emphasized. He said in verse 2, you are the one who uprooted Canaan and planted Israel. So, the other establishment in the promised land holy to God. God who had driven out the nations in the days of their fathers. God who had established his people peacefully, peacefully in the new land. Also, the same God is able to intervene now during the time of their affliction and to save them. There are many stories in, in the book of Joshua that actually indicate that the conquest in the days of Joshua, Israel did nothing. God alone did the work. Let me give you two examples. When they crossed 
the Jordan River and God split the Jordan River to be a dry land, what did Israel do? Nothing. It's 100% God's hand. And the same with Jericho. When they actually make a procession around Jericho for seven days and the last day seven times and the walls of Jericho uh, knocked down, what did they do? Nothing. So we can see here, it is not their sword, it's not their arm, it's not their armies, it's not their weapons, it is God. So, yes, there were other times when Israel had to fight, but their fighting would have accomplished nothing without the right hand of God on their behalf. So, it is always important to have the face and favor of God for them as having the right hand or arm of the Lord. He said, your right hand, your arm, your light. In the same way, our victory in the spiritual warfare without grace of God will be defeated. These battles happened long before the generation of the time of the psalmist. If this psalm was composed during the Babylonian captivity, so the time of Joshua is actually long before the time of the Babylonian captivity. So the fathers here spoke not only of what they personally had experienced of God, but also they also taught what God did with many generations before. Maybe we can share with our children our experience, our lived experience with God. But here they said the experience of their grand-grand-grandfathers, many generations to their children. It's our duty to share the experience with our older generation, with our children. Who is the right hand and who is the arm and what is the light here? St. Augustine says, the right hand is thy power. The arm is the Son himself. So the arm is the Son, Jesus Christ, and the right hand is the power. And the light of your countenance, what means this? But that thou were present with them. So when he said the, the light means the existence of God, he said three things here. It was your right hand, which is the power of God, your arm, your son, and the light of your countenance, the presence of God with them. He said, St. Augustine, in miracles of such a sort, of thy presence, of such a sort, thy presence were perceived. When God actually split the Jordan River, when the walls of Jericho fall down, definitely God was there. For when God's presence with us appears by any miracle, we don't see his face with our own eyes, but by the effect of the miracles, he intimates to man his presence. When we see the Israelites did not see the countenance of God, but when God split the Jordan liver, they knew God is in their midst. 
verse 4, You are my king, O God. Command victories for Jacob. Here, the psalmist used a singular number, my king, although this psalm is expression of the nation of Israel. But he used a singular number as expressive of his own feeling, though he doubtless means also to speak in the name of the nation of Israel. By saying, you are my king, the psalmist acknowledged no other king but God, no other absolute Lord and Master. And the remembrance of the past gives confidence for the present and the future. God's strength must still avail for the deliverance of his people, and in him, in God alone, they trust. And he said, command the victories for Jacob. Being a king, he has the right to command. All what God needs to do is just to command. And when he said command victories for Jacob, Jacob is used here to denote the descendants of Jacob or the people of God. Verse 5, through you we will push down our enemies. Through your name, we will trample those who rise up against us. Al-Arabi, imkin adak fi l-Ingliz fi tarjama push down, bika nan tah mudayqina. As I would explain, uh, as animal with horn, and he can actually push down their enemies. Uh, we will push down our enemies. The metaphor is taken from animals pushing with their horns those that oppose them and in self-defense. Actually, there is allusion to Deuteronomy chapter 33, verse 17. His glory is like a firstborn bull and his horns like the horns of the wild ox. Together with them, he shall push the people to the end of the earth. So the psalmist here was referring to what's written in Deuteronomy 33, verse 17. The Lord's name served instead of weapons and enabled those who used the Lord's name to crush their enemies. He said, in your name. Through you, we will push down our enemies. Through your name, we will trample those who rise against us. That's why in spiritual warfare, when Satan attacks us, call on the name of the Lord. My Lord Jesus Christ, help me. My Lord Jesus Christ, strengthen me. One can work wonders when in union and communion with God. In his name, believers fight with their spiritual enemies that rise up against them like sin, like Satan. And through the power of the Lord, we will trample them down. Verse 6. For I will not trust in my bow, nor shall my sword save me. So, 
the author of the psalm again speaks as expressing his own feeling and stating the grounds of his confidence and hope. At the same time, he doubtless expresses the feeling of people and speaks in their name. He assured God that their faith was in him only and in his power, not in their own strength or skill, not in the bow or any other weapon. They, under God's guidance, pushed out the heathen and gained their land, not by skill of weapons or powers of arms, but by the power of God alone. Therefore, they will not rely upon outward confidence, of which other men make such boast, but only upon the omnipotence of God. Verse 7, But you have saved us from our enemies and have put to shame those who hated us. Again, he goes back to previous experience. The help comes with the visible enemies as well as with the spiritual enemy. And although this psalm refers to physical enemies or visible enemies, but we can apply it to our spiritual enemy. St. John Chrysostom says, Not in weapons do I trust, that is not in my strength, nor in my righteousness, but in the mercy of God. Verse 7 carries double action of God. How come double action? He said, You have saved us from our enemies. That's one action. And you have put to shame those who hated us. So you saved us and put to shame our enemies. He is blessing his people and defeating his enemies. Therefore, the psalmist is expecting God to grant deliverance from enemies and give them success. God has been the object of their praises in the past, and to him they will give thanks continually, as he said in verse 8, In God we boast all day long, and praise your name forever. In God we boast all day long, and praise your name forever. So God has been the object of their praises in the past, and to him they will give thanks continually. All day long means it is not a momentary or temporary expression of the psalmist feeling, but it will be a habitual and constant service of praising God. St. John Chrysostom shares his thoughts on verse 8 and says, This after all is our glory, this our boast. Our glory and our boast is in God. In this we take pride in the company of everyone, in the presence of everyone, we take pride in God. Not for the fact that we have a great and wonderful city. We don't take pride in this. Not that we were the first to overcome. No, we don't take pride in that. Nor that we prevail by bodily strength. No. But because we have God who is true, 
In this we boast, not only when you help us, but even when you abandon us. Because as we're going to see in, in next verses, how they felt abandonment from God. But in spite of this abandonment, they still boast and take glory of God all day long. All day long means every moment, even when God blesses us or when we feel abandoned by God, we will continue to praise Him. This, you see, is the meaning of all day long. Nothing can parallel this boasting. Then after verse 8, Selah, because from verse 9, he will go into a different uh, expression of their feeling right now, how they feel defeated and abandoned. So a pause comes in, a pause comes in, Selah means a pause, to reflect, to meditate. So comes in here and properly. Verse 9 But you have cast us off and put us to shame and you do not go out with our armies. Now he is explaining in, in from verse eight to uh, 1 to 8 the past experiences of the mercies and the loving kindness of God. From verse 9 they express what they are going through right now. How they feel that God abandons them. God forsook them. So, these verses are a powerful and bitter complaint. The Psalms begins to contrast the past glories of the nation's history with its present sadness and distress. He now stated his great present need. They felt that God did not fight for Israel. Therefore, they were without hope in battle. Sometimes in our spiritual uh, warfare, we feel we are defeated. What I am, what, why I am struggling with this sin for a long time? Why God is not fighting for me? Why he is giving me in to this sin? God has seemed to cast them off has put them to shame, allowed them to be defeated, slain, and carried into captivity. He no longer go out with their armies to secure them victory over their enemies, but waits distant and cover them with confusion. St. Augustine, on verse 9, he says, for there was a time when Christians were persecuted, when in every place they were outcasts, when in every place it used to be said, he is Christian as if it conveyed an insult and reproach. Where then is he our God and our King who commands salvation unto Jacob? Where is he who did all those works which our fathers have told us. Where is he who is hereafter to do all those things which he revealed unto us by his spirit? Is he changed? Why God is forsaking us? Why he is allowing all this persecution and suffering for the Christian? No, he did not change. You remember in the title for understanding, the sons of Korah for understanding, 
So San Augustine here, these things are done in order to understanding for the sons of Korah. They want to know that sometimes God actually allow us to suffer. So this suffering will be participation in his suffering and also will be participation in his glory. So we ought to understand something of the reason, as St. Paul said, if we suffer with him, we'll be glorified with him. Why he has willed we should suffer all these things in the meantime. St. Peter in his letter says, he who suffers in the flesh cease from sin. Verse 10, you make us turn back from the enemy and those who hate us have taken a spoil for themselves. So what come upon the people, people of Israel, was not because of the strength of their enemies, but mainly because God has cast them off for some time. And that scripture implies not a single defeat, but a somewhat continued period of depression, during which several armies have been beaten, several battles lost, multitudes slain, great numbers carried away captive. In verse 11, you have given us up like sheep intended for food. And have scattered us among the nations. So the psalmist understood that for Israel. Israel, the nation of the covenant was God. Victory or defeat was in the hand of God. From verse 8, 1 to 8, he said, Our victory because your hand, your arm, your light of your countenance. And now their defeat, again, God allowed it. You have given us up like sheep intended for food. Therefore, if they were defeated, scattered, sold into slavery, made a reproach, it was because God's hand was behind it in some way. God cast them away. And I want you to notice the repetition of the word you. You have given us. You sell your people for the next to nothing and are not enriched by selling them. That's verse 12. You sell us for the next enemy, but you sell us for free and you are not enriched by selling them. So the Lord seemed to hand over his people to any nation who might choose to make war upon Israel. You sell your people for next to nothing. The whole nation is regarded as delivered over to the will of their enemies. To nothing means no good result was understandable from all the miseries of Israel. You are not glorified by sending us to the enemies. You did not actually, or you are not being glorified when you sold us to our enemies for free. That's from the perception of the psalmist, of course. So far as the psalmist could discern, the Lord's name did not receive any honor 
from the sorrows of his people. They were given away to their enemies as if they were of so little value for nothing and not to be worth the ordinary price of slaves. Even the price of slaves they did not get. And the Lord did not care to gain by them so long as they suffer, as if the focus here, the people should suffer, even if there is no gain. As if the psalmist is saying, if God had been glorified by our richness, maybe we can justify it and we can endure it patiently. But it was the reverse. The name of God was blasphemed. The Lord's name have been despised by the insulting heathen who counted the overthrow of Israel to be defeat of God himself. As he said in verse 13, you make us a reproach to our neighbors, a scorn and a derision to those all around us. So here the psalmist from his perception is attributing to God human motive and feeling. Of course, God is above this human motive. As though the surrender of his people, when God make his people defeated, might have seemed more justifiable if God had received some equivalent for them. If God actually gets some honor, that is how the psalmist is thinking. If God may get some honor from our suffering, it makes sense. But the psalmist is saying, you did not get honor and we are suffer. Then for whose benefit is all of this? But on the same day, way, that could be considered as a rebuke addressed to the people as well. How come? On account of that, God seeks no benefit for himself out of their tribulation. It's very clear, God not seeking any benefit out of their tribulation. God did not sell them to their enemies, anticipating price or profit. Then, why God is delivering them? For sure, it is for their edification, for eternal salvation, for their glory, even if they cannot see it right now. If we suffer with him, we'll be glorified with him. So, the meaning here or the understanding that we should get here, God is getting nothing from our suffering. Rather, his name is reproached. Then why he allows the suffering? Because it is the way of glory. For our glory. So, the ultimate actually reason behind this suffering is our glory. God wants us to be glorified with him. So they would be reproached not so much as weak and powerless themselves, but rather as having a weak and powerless God. That's how the nation is saying. Not Israel is weak and powerless, but their God is weak and powerless. And the word the neighbors here refer to the surrounding nations. The word the neighbors, you make us a reproach to our neighbors, a scorn and a derision to those 
all around us. So they were reproached, scorned, dreaded as forsaken by God. Surrounding nations treated them with contempt. They no longer fear them, no longer the nations fear Israel or respect them as having nothing to entitle them to respect. These nations point to their fate as a parable of people abandoned by their God, and they become the subject of mocking songs. That's why he said, a shaking of the head among the people. As we read in verse 14, you make us a byword among the nations, a shaking of the head among the people. So the nations actually, the, the word by word means a parable. So they used Israel as an example of people abandoned by their God. And Israel became the subject of mocking songs and the shaking of head. Shaking of head, also we read it about uh, Jesus Christ during the time of crucifixion. So St. Augustine is saying, a shaking of the head by way of insult. The, if you read about the crucifixion of the Lord Jesus Christ, they spoke with their lips, they shook their, the head. This they did to the Lord. This to all his saints also. They did to all his saints, whom they were able to pursue, to lay hold of, to mock, to betray, to afflict, and to slay. During the time of persecution, that's what they did to the martyrs. Verse 15. We will stop tonight at verse 16. Just two more verses. My dishonor is continually before me. My dishonor is continually before me. And the shame of my face has covered me. So the psalmist here is represented as the head of, of the people of Israel and expresses the sense of disgrace. My dishonor is continually before me. He is identifying himself with the people and he speaks of the nation, national disgrace as his own disgrace and shame. The word shame here, the conviction and the evidence of his disgrace is constantly present with him. My dishonor is continu continually before me. Verse 16, the shame of my face has covered me because of the voice of him who reproaches and reviles, because of the enemy and the avenger. So, the psalmist was brought low, not only because of the defeat and disgrace suffered from their enemies, but worse than the sins that it was because God had abandoned Israel or perhaps was against them. So the disgrace and the shame was more because the feeling of abandonment by God or God is against them. The misery of Israel was so great that eventually the very name Jew become a byword. They say it's Jew as insult. The shame of my face has covered me. He felt before God that the divine abandonment 
was well deserved and before man that he and his people were wicked and disgraceful indeed now that heavenly help was gone. So before God there is divine abandonment and before men they were perceived as wicked and disgraceful because the heavenly help has gone away. Also, the voice of him who reproaches and reviles because the enemy, because of the enemy and avenger. So that does not only reproach him. This voice not reproaching Israel only, which he could bear, but they blaspheme God because of them is something he cannot uh, tolerate. As if he is saying, if they are reproaching me, I can bear it, endure it. But they are blaspheming against you. I cannot tolerate this. The reproaches of the heathen were most commonly blasphemous since they, consider, they consisted very mainly of mocking, taunting expression against the God of Israel. The reproach which the enemy and the avenger cast upon them was absolute blasphemy against God. There is no trouble more grievous to a good soul than to hear blasphemy and dishonor done to God. We'll stop here tonight, but I don't want you, because all these verses speak about how God abandons them. So I don't want you to get the impression that the psalmist lost complete hope. God. He's just expressing how he feels. But the last two verses, actually uh, last uh, four verses, there is still hope and trust in God because of his mercy, not because we deserve. When he said, awake, why do you sleep, O Lord? Arise, don't cast us forever. Why do you hide your face and forget our affliction and our oppression? For our soul is bowed down to the dust, our body clings to the ground. Arise for our help and redeem us for your mercy's sake. He did not say redeem us because we are worthy. So he still have trust in the mercies of God, in the long suffering of God, in his patience, in his loving kindness to deliver them. Just I want you to leave tonight with this negative complaint. But the psalmist concluded, as, as usual in the psalms, is concluded with confidence, hope uh, in the loving kindness, in the mercies, in the compassion of God. Glory be to God forever and ever. Amen. In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit, one God. Amen. In the Gospel of today, we have the story of uh, the prodigal son. And in this story, we have two sons, the older son and the younger one. And these two sons represent actually the Jews and the Gentiles. The older son represent the Jews, Israel, the chosen people of God in the Old Covenant. And the Gentiles 
represented by the younger son. The younger son, the Gentiles accepted the Lord Jesus Christ. Yes, in the old covenant they were dead. But in the new covenant, when they accepted the Lord Jesus Christ, they become alive. Yes, they were lost. But in the new covenant, by accepting the Lord Jesus Christ, they actually are, uh, are found. And why the Jews did not repent like the Gentiles? The main reason, as St. Paul explained clearly in the letter to Romans and in the letter to Galatians and many other letters, because the sin of the self-righteousness. The Jews were seeking righteousness that comes from themselves. But the Gentiles knew they are sinners and they need a savior. So the Gentiles sought the righteousness that comes from God, that comes from the blood of the savior, that comes from the compassion and the long suffering and the loving tenderness of God toward us. And unfortunately in our life, Many of us, the Christian, fall in the sin of self-righteousness, like the older son. And most of the people who are self-righteous, they are blind to their self-righteousness. And that's why they don't realize that they have this sin. That's why the Lord called the leaders of Israel blind guides. They were blind. And in John chapter 9, he told them, if you were blind, means if you admit your blindness, you would not have any sin, because they will seek the righteousness of Christ. But since you say, we see, although they were blind, but they say, we see, they don't admit or acknowledge or realize that they are blind. Since you say, we see, therefore your sin remains. That's why today I like to speak with you about this sin, the sin of self-righteousness, which was the sin of the older son. What does it mean to be self-righteous? Self-righteous means you take pride in your own actions, in your own works. You feel you are right and others are wrong. You feel that you are following the commandments of God. You feel that you are obedient to God and to the law and to the rules. And when you compare yourself to others, you feel that you are better than them. Like the Pharisee and the tax collector. When the Pharisee prayed, he spoke about his righteousness. 
I fast two days in the week. I tithe all my money. I am not like the, those, the sinners. I'm not like this tax collector. But the person who doesn't have this sin, he knows that he is a sinner. He is not counting his right, righteous acts. But he knows that he is a sinner. And it is only through the blood of our Lord Jesus Christ and through his mercy and through his forgiveness I am righteous in front of God because he forgave my sin because he accepted me and when the person actually progress or advance in his spiritual life the more he realizes that he is a sinner St. Paul in the beginning of his journey said about the apostles of Christ are they the apostles of Christ? I am better but before his martyrdom how did he describe himself? he said I am the first among the sinners so when he progressed in his spiritual life he realizes that he is a sinner, the first among the sinners. But it is through the mercies and the loving kindness of God, he is righteous, righteous in Christ, not because of my own righteous acts. Sometimes we say, I am the first among sinners. But in my heart, I don't see myself this way. So, how can I search myself and ask the Holy Spirit to search me to know whether I am a self-righteous person or not? Especially, as I told you, most of the people who are self-righteous are in denial. If not all of them, they are in denial. They don't realize they are suffering from this sin. So let us analyze the behavior of the older son. And if we have the same behavior, then we are self-righteous. When he came from the field and heard like a party in the house, and he asked one of the servants, What's going on? And the servant explained to him, Your brother has come, and because he has received him safe, the father received his son safe and sound, your father has killed the fatted calf. How he reacted to this? Number one, but he was angry. He was angry. Sometimes, or most of the time, the self-righteous people gets angry and their anger is not justified if you tell me here why he was angry how he can justify his anger his father did not hurt him his father did not do anything wrong to him but do you know why he was angry because he feels 
he deserved this treatment, not his brother. That's self-righteousness. He's angry because he felt that his father should make this celebration and this party for him, not for his brother. So because of this jealousy, because of this envy, because of his self-righteousness, he became angry. How come you make this big celebration for my brother who is a sinner, who is adulterous, and you didn't do it for me? If you get angry because you feel that you deserve a better treatment and you don't get it, then you have the sin of self-righteousness. Sometimes, as I, I tell you, we get angry without any justified reason. It's because our pride, because of our ego, we get angry. That's self-righteousness. Then, what did he do? The second point after he gets angry, he would not go in. Now, he expressed his frustration. And he is upset. He's disappointed. And he wants to make sure that everyone around him knows that he is disappointed. And he is upset. And he refused to get in. Why? He refused to go in. Why? In order to bring the attention to himself. Now the attention is directed to his brother. But he wants the attention to be directed to him, not to his brother. So by staying out, outside and not going in, everybody would say, why the older son did not come in? And now the attention, he is attention seeker. And he uses this disappointment or being upset or separating himself from the rest or isolating himself from the rest in order to send a strong message. I deserve your attention. Or I am better than you, I should not deal with you. I am better than you, I should not deal with you. So, if you get upset quickly, if you get disappointed quickly, and you say, I'm not coming to the church, and just you want to send a message that you are angry and upset, you are a self-righteous person. Because you want to get all the attention toward you. And how you justify it yourself? Because you don't do anything wrong. They are wrong, but I am right. This celebration is 100% wrong. I am right. I'm not going to participate in the works of darkness. I'm not going to participate in this celebration. Then actually, you can see his pride. He was angry, would not go in. The third point, therefore his father came out and pleaded with him. Usually, the self-righteous person doesn't go for reconciliation. Usually people come and seek reconciliation. 
People come to please him. People come to say, why you are angry? Why you are disappointed? How can we make you happy? If your behavior makes people around you all the time come to you and tell you, how can we make you happy? What pleases you? What should we do in order for you to be happy and come and participate in this celebration? Then you are self-righteous. And you can see here how the son allowed his father to come out to him. It's not right. The younger should go to the older, not the opposite. If he is upset or disappointed, he should go to his father, not the opposite. Not to wait until the father comes to him outside and plead it with him. Beg him, please come. Please let us be merry. Please let us rejoice together. But even in his pride, he feels he's better than his dad. He's better than the father. That's why he waited outside. And when they told him the father is coming out to you, he was not moved. He waited. And the father pleaded with him, begged him to come in. The fourth point in his behavior, he, the self-righteous son, answered and said to his father, Lo, these many years I have been serving you, and I never transgressed your commandment at any time, and yet you never give me a young goat, that I might make merry with my friends. But as soon as this son of yours came, who has devoured your livelihood with harlots, you killed the fatted calf for him. If you analyze what he said in this statement, number one, he is justifying himself and he is counting his righteous act. He said, number one, all these years I have been serving you. As if he was doing some, you know, you are the son. That's your house. That's your field. That's your inheritance. You are not serving your father. You are serving actually your own self. But he tried to justify himself and to count his righteous deeds. Exactly like the Pharisee who said, I fast two days. I give the tithe of my money. Sometimes when we come, either with God or with one another, I did this for you, I did that for you, I never did this to you. We count because we feel we are righteous. If you are upset with somebody like your spouse, your children, somebody in the church, and you start to count what you are doing or what you have done, the goodness in you, you are self-righteous. The person who is humble should not count what he did because we know even if we do anything good, it's because of God, not because of me. In us, there is no righteousness. It is God actually who works in us. So he is justifying himself. And number two, he blamed his father. He said, you never, yet you never give me a young goat. And I'm sure the father actually 
was very kind and generous to him. In the beginning of the parable, you read that the father actually divided all his possessions between his two sons. Although he is still alive, but he divided all his money, all his possessions to his two sons. But usually they forget what others did to them. And they blame others. Usually they point uh, and, and blame others falsely. You never give me a young goat blaming others. Again, if all what you remember for the other, your spouse, your children, your friend, what they did wrong to you, and you don't remember what they did good to you, then you, you actually are suffering from self-righteousness. And number three, in this, I'm analyzing the statement. He actually blind to his own sins. He said to his father, I never transgressed your commandment at any time. This statement cannot be true. Cannot be true. I never transgressed your commandment at any time. Who, who can say this? Which son in the whole world can say to his father, I have never transgressed your commandment at any time. But this actually shows the state of blindness. He's totally blind to his own sins. And number four, the condescending comment and the, justi the judging others. Listen how he spoke about his brother. He said, but as soon as this son of yours, not my brother, this son of yours, that's a condescending comment, who has devoured your livelihood with harlot, this one who is adulterous and lived with harlots, you killed the fatted calf for him. Then actually he blamed again his father, not only because as he claims, the father never gave him even a young goat to make merry with his friends, but he's blaming the father for loving his son and accepting his son and make this big celebration for the son, for the younger son. So there are actually seven points in the behavior of the older son. And if we have the same behavior, then we are tempted in the sin of self-righteousness. He became angry so easy. He expressed his disappointment and he sought the attention by just staying outside and refused to go in. The third point, he actually waited until people come to please him. What can I do to please you? What can make you happy? What I can do so you can come in and celebrate with us the return of your son. Usually people all the time try to make you happy. That's self-righteousness. Number four, he is justifying his actions and counting his good deeds. Number five, he blames others, even his father, without a justifying 
a reasonable cause. He blamed his father falsely. That's false accusation. Number six, he was totally blind to his sins. And he makes a statement like, I have never transgressed your commandment at any time. And number seven, it's a condensing, condensing uh, comment. This son of yours, and judging others, who actually wasted your livelihood was harmed. So, these are seven points from the behavior of the older son that can help us to examine ourselves and ask God to examine ourselves, lest we are suffering from self-righteousness. The sin of self-righteousness, actually one of the very, very destructive sins, because people, they don't feel need to repent. They don't feel need to transform their life. They don't feel the need to change their life. They feel they are better. Repentance for the sinners, but I am righteous. That's why the scribes and Pharisees and the religious leaders of Israel were not saved because of self-righteousness. The harlots, the thieves, the tax collectors actually were saved because they realized their sins. They admitted and acknowledged their sins. But our time, many people are moralistic, legalists, and see themselves better than others. And they are in danger of self-righteousness, which actually puts their salvation at high risk. So, who is the lost son here? The lost son is not actually the younger son. The younger son, yes, he was lost, but now is found. But the lost son is the older son because of the sin of self-righteousness. And the, the, the parable ended without telling us he entered the house. In his stubbornness, in his pride, in his hypocrisy, in his self-righteousness, he did not enter the house, even after the father pleaded with him. Because again, he believed that he is better than his father. He knows what's right. His father is wrong. That's why he did not enter the house. May the Lord protect all of us from this destructive sin and give us humbleness and give us enlightenment in order to realize that we are sinners and we need his righteousness. His righteousness that comes to us because of his mercies and because of his loving kindness. Glory be to God forever and ever. Amen.